Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined on this Friday afternoon by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. All right, I'm going to talk to you, and I hope that you and our listeners can hear me loud and somewhat clear, but we have been having issues with the audio this morning. In fact, That's right. it was Friday morning when we initially tried to record this yes. podcast, and here we are several minutes later still trying to figure out these audio issues. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope the, the sound quality is okay, and if it's not, uh, we will make sure to get that rectified for our future episodes. But for now, we're going to plow ahead. What among our pre-discussed topics do you want to start with here, Cash? Do you want to start with the Wolves since... They're also in the news for a somewhat major injury. I mean, it's not like a star player injury, but it's a major rotation piece injury. Nas Reed, a guy we both love, a guy that was one of my inaugural all-nobody team selections a couple of years ago. Very important uh, part of how Minnesota survived without Carl Anthony Towns for much of the season. He is now out, I believe, indefinitely. All that we know is that he's going to miss significant time, but there's no timetable on it. He broke his wrist, and there's two weeks left in the regular season, so... Um, they're probably not going to get him back. I mean, unless they make a deep run without him, I have a hard time believing we'll see him again this season. So I guess we can start there just because they're the team. With well, a... it's, the, it's his shooting wrist, right? Yeah. So it was also weird because, so we were watching that game uh, together yeah. in a bar. And uh, I originally thought he hurt his right wrist because if you watch the way he dunked it or tried to dunk it, his wrist smacked off the rim instead of his like hand area. And I thought, but then I think he actually ended up breaking his left hand on the fall, right? Oh not... yeah. You know what? You're right. Left wrist. So, yeah. So, so not his shooting wrist. So that maybe would give one some optimism that he can come yeah. back. You know, even if that left hand or wrist is like not super functional and has to be wrapped like if it's not a shooting wrist, then maybe that that makes it easier for him to get back at some point this season. But certainly not ideal for him or the Timberwolves at this stage when they remain in a pretty heated battle for a playoff spot, for playoff positioning, a whole lot still on the table and up in the air with just six games to go in the regular season. Yeah, and it's it's really a shame because... You know, while they may not have lived up to the season-long expectations you had for them in the regular season, they were playing pretty well, and I'd say, you know, for the most part, pretty inspired ball with Cat out. I know that only amounted to a 500 record, but still, a 500 record in this Western Conference without your franchise player or assumed franchise player is a you know pretty respectable performance I know you wrote about them last week and the kind of identity they had found without Cat, and you know they were a good defensive team but uh yeah and not that Nas Reed isn't necessarily gonna you know losing him is gonna really impact the defense at all but one thing you you wrote about in that piece too and it's something anyone who's watched the Timberwolves or has followed them since the summer knows is like they definitely wanted to continue playing with two bigs on the court and that kind of goes by the wayside now in the minutes when one of Towns or Gobert sits because who is the other big? Like, okay, they'll start with the two bigs and, and that identity they want, but as soon as they have to dip into their bench, they're going with, you know, one big because I'm trying to even think, who who is the fourth best big on this team? Luca Garza, I guess. There, yeah. Is it even Luca? I think it's Luke Garza. <laughs> it's Luca. Is it actually? Yeah. yeah. 
thought it was Luke Garza. Well, the fact that one of us doesn't know his first name is uh, a testament to how pitiful the bigs depth is after their top three. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just a shame because I feel like they haven't really gotten a chance to show, not even to show the world, but like to even prove to themselves what they are this year because you had Cat missing uh, time early in the season when he had what? Did he have a respiratory infection or something? He he had a throat infection. That's why he missed all of training camp. And that right. was probably part of the reason that he and the Wolves got off to a kind of slow right. start. And then he comes back, suffers the injury, misses what? Four months. 52 games. Third game back, Reed gets hurt. So yeah, just it, it feels like the Timberwolves have never really been able to hit their stride healthy. Even, I mean, the Towns has played three games. I think Ant missed one of those three. So, yeah, now with Reed out, it just seems like this is going to be one of those seasons for them where you just never really got a full picture of what they are or what they could be. And we might have to wait till next October to see it. Yeah, it's really a shame. And I I don't want to say this completely takes the wind out of their sails because – the bones of this team are still in place and healthy now. And like, it, this doesn't necessarily preclude them from finishing the regular season strong and having a really competitive first round series, potentially even winning a first round series. But it is really significant, not just because Nas Reed is really good, like exceptionally skilled offensive center. And has really been putting it all together at that end of the floor, like between the, the pick and pop ability and how well he's shooting it to his ability to drive the ball and get to the rim. He's like got a pretty nice handle for a big man busting out some inside out dribbles, like undressing uh, opposing bigs, like posterizing a few of them. Yes. Uh, It's just like the, the wolves bench, which has been really up and down all year and they've swapped pieces in and out. And like Jalen Noel has been in and out of the rotation and Nikhil Alexander Walker comes over and, Kyle Anderson, who'd been starting in Towns' absence, had kind of gone back to the bench and brought some more stability to that unit. Uh, that that bench had become a really important part of their success, I think. Not just with Reed and Slomo, but also like Torian Prince has been playing really well. And Noel had recently kind of made it back into the rotation and had showed out in a couple of games. And it's just a huge loss. And then, like to your point about how Towns goes out, they have to kind of figure out a new identity on the fly. They kind of do figure that out over the course of that 52-game absence. Lean harder into defense. Tread water. Then Towns gets back. They look really good with him back in the mix. And they do it while leaning more into just playing super big and having two bigs on the court at all times, which they actually weren't doing that often early in the season. Like Nas was playing like 10-ish minutes a game and getting DNP'd sometimes at the start of the season. Whereas like, when Towns gets back, he's still playing, you know, between 20 and 25 minutes every night. And they're kind of keeping two of those guys between him, Towns and Gobert on the court almost at all times. And now they lose him and they have to figure out a new identity again. And it's just sort of been like that for them all season where they can't really catch a rhythm for a a sustained period of time. Something just keeps interrupting their progress. You know, the, the stick getting wedged in their spokes and uh, it's a shame because they have been playing really well. They have positioned themselves to maybe get into the top six and maybe even 
into the four or five bracket, although that loss to Phoenix made that a lot less likely. And to be honest, no, I don't know that they would necessarily even want that. Like, I think if they're looking at potential playoff matchups, they'd probably rather get Sacramento in the first round than one of the Clippers or the Suns. So one way or another, they're like equally close to, to jumping into the top six and to like falling out of the play-in entirely, which has been the state of the West pretty much this entire season. But uh, lo- losing a significant piece like Nas Reed at this stage is obviously suboptimal. It's not really comparable to some of the absences that right. other teams in that mix are dealing with right now. But just for a team that hasn't really been able to catch a break this entire season, it's like you kind of throw up your hands and say, like, really? Really? Yeah. What have you thought uh, or what have you liked or disliked from what you've seen from Cat so far? I've liked pretty much all of it, to be honest. I think that he has come back. And this is like the great thing about Towns and his offensive skill set. It's very malleable, right? Like you can slot him in and he doesn't necessarily need to step on anybody's toes. And I, I think he came back without really interrupting any of the flow, you know, to the extent that the team had any, but like he compliments everybody else, right? Like he makes life easier for Edwards. Um, he'll space the floor for them. And, I, like give them an element of, you know, obviously the size, like we talked about, but offensive creation and connective playmaking that just honestly amplifies everybody and doesn't really take anything off the table. We can talk about some of the warts in his offensive game, which, you know, I don't think are necessarily going anywhere. Like even in that Phoenix game, he had this monstrous first half where he scored 20 points, was shooting the shit out of the ball, was being super assertive. And then he kind of fades into the background in the second half. And I think took four, maybe five shots in the second half. And we've seen that, I think, a few too many times with Cat. And like I've said in the past, I wrote about it during the playoffs last year. It's There's equal measures of culpability you know, between Cat and the rest of the team. Like I think it's on him to be more assertive. And it is also on the team and the coaching staff to put him in better positions to be more of a focal point in the offense and not let him drift into the background. But, you know, for the most part, I think he's looked really good. I actually think his defense has been quite solid, especially in that Golden State game. I thought he put together a really strong defensive game, like even hanging with Steph on a couple switches and making the kind of low man rotations they really needed him to make so that his size could play up and actually be a boon to their defense rather than a detriment. I I think he's looked good. Uh, and that's that's what makes this so tough because like a big part of their success since he'd gotten back was like the minutes with him and Reed out there, which had been a disaster early in the season and also the season prior had actually been very, very strong. Yeah, well, because usually, I mean, if you, if you have two bigs on the court and you can't defend, that's just an absolute recipe for disaster. Yeah. And that's why those lineups well, unless have been... Those two, yeah. Those two bigs, him and Reed, are like two exceptionally skilled offensive, offensive bigs. Yes, but what I was going to say, but those lineups were shredded in the past because of that. But to your point about Cat's small sample size seemingly improved D since he, he got back, that does make those lineups a little more survivable. Yeah. Um, and again, now we're just not going to get to see it until if Reed even gets back. Yeah, but again, like still, I think a lot of reason for optimism with this team this season 
and certainly looking toward the future. Now, Reed is going to be an unrestricted free agent this summer, so we may have seen him play his last game as a Timberwolf. Yeah. I think they're going to do everything they can to retain him, but that that is not insignificant. But everybody else, every other member of the rotation is under contract next season. And I think all of the things they sort of figured out in Towns' absence and the strides we've seen Edwards make, the strides we've seen Jaden McDaniels make, like I think his offensive development this season is really exciting in terms of tightening up his handle, really improving his driving game, shooting the ball very well, creating for himself a little bit. Like I think that bodes really well because as, as I've said in the past, he's already you know easily in my mind one of the 10 best defenders in basketball and still just... 22 years old edwards is 21 mm-hmm. like they have time to figure this out and i do think they figured a lot of things out over the course of this season they just have been kind of snake bitten and if they can get a bit better luck on on the health front and the continuity front next season i think they are still very much capable of having the type of year that i thought they were capable of having this year you know like for one thing i feel like conley has just really changed their team yeah, we talked about fit. that on the episode, you know, where we were talking about like the, the deadline trades and how they've worked out, like just him as like a responsible caretaker for a team that was one of the most turnover prone teams in basketball is game changing. He's made Gobert so much more functional offensively. I'm not going to throw the stats out here, but like if you want to go and look and compare Gobert's numbers before the trade to after, it's like night and day. And so I think that's been huge. And Conley, he's like really competing defensively in a way that whether it was just like because of injury or apathy, although I don't know if like apathy is really a thing you'd attribute to Mike Conley, but like the past two years in Utah, he did not look like this guy defensively. So I think he's really changed the shape of the team. And then Kyle Anderson, the perfect connective piece, just a, a, a playmaker in the middle of the floor. You know, there are times when like opposing teams will stick a wing on Gobert Towns and a center on Kyle Anderson because even though he's shooting like 41% from three this season, he has this ridiculously slow windup and release that makes him basically a non-spacer. But in those situations, like whether he's just flashing into the middle of the floor or they're using him as a role man, he's still super effective just like with that, that push shot that's been like over 50% this season. Like he can be a scorer... But if you put him in those spots, like he's always going to make great decisions as a playmaker and um, and a monster defender as well. So they they have all these pieces that are kind of coalescing, and I feel like you know they they still have a good shot to nab a top six seed or at the very least like get a, a playoff seed proper. And then I feel like we say this about so many teams this time of year, like I don't know if you want to face this team in the first round. And I don't know that I'm like ready to say that about Minnesota because they're still pretty jagged and uneven in a lot of ways. But uh, they do feel like a team that's maybe hitting its stride at the right time. Yeah, well, one, I, I don't really think there's an easy out in the West. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, would a team rather, actually, I don't even know. I was going to say a team would probably rather play the Thunder if they could. But even them, I don't know. They'll find a way to make things interesting in their own right. I I don't know if the Timberwolves are necessarily seen as like a peskier opponent than others, but I will say that, and we were talking about this off air the night we were watching Wolves Suns. I like I'd pick the Wolves over the Kings. Even without without Nas? Uh no, I mean we said that before the injury. 
Yeah. Uh, because I think not. like in that probably matchup, not. I think the Wolves bench would have been one of their big advantages. Yeah. No, probably not with Reed out. But yeah, I don't know, man. Like Conley, you look at like a, a best five of Conley, Anderson, McDaniels, Towns, and Gobert in a playoff setting where your best five are playing. No, no, no Ant in that best five? Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> With, I mean, I uh, love Kyle Anderson. No, but. no, no. Yeah, that's my bad. That's my bad. <laughs> Your best six wow, with Ant in there and and slow-mo coming off the bench, you know, in a playoff setting where your best players are playing the most minutes, I think those guys, that like those six can definitely compete. But yeah, I don't know. The thing is too, Sacramento, Minnesota would be just an absolute score fest like an offensive explosion on both ends and maybe the maybe that's fine for the kings because they feel they can kind of outscore and outshoot anybody like maybe maybe they'd be a little they'd be a little more worried about a good defensive team that can muck it up a bit i don't know if minnesota can do that yo i mean minnesota's been really good defensively for like pretty much since towns got injured yeah they top 10 defensively since towns got hurt yeah so i don't know i mean as recently as 48 hours ago, before the, the Reed injury, I, like I said, I thought I would have picked them to win a best of seven versus Sacramento. I'd probably flip to the Kings now because I, I you know, I would have said the margin was so thin to begin with that something mm. like losing a key rotation piece probably flips it the other way, plus Sacramento having home court. But I think that's the matchup that if the Wolves in their current state have a chance to actually make some postseason noise, that's probably the matchup they need to draw. Yeah, man. I mean, a huge thing with the Wolves is just they stink at rebounding. And Nas Reed is not a good rebounder for a guy his size, but he still is a guy his size, you know, a near seven footer. And that ultimately still helps more than it hurts. So losing another big guy when you're already really struggling to rebound the basketball is not ideal. And for a team that does sort of build its identity around size and also vertical athleticism in a lot of cases. It's very disappointing that they are 26th in both offensive and defensive rebounding. Like you're built to play big and you can't rebound the ball. Like you're losing one of what should be the biggest advantages of playing the way that you play. And then you kind of like have a lot of the drawbacks of playing big without one of the major benefits. It's a big problem because one of the drawbacks, as we've seen with like a lot of different teams that play big, is your transition defense suffers. That's been a big issue anytime Towns has been healthy for the Wolves this season. And I, I mentioned this in the piece that I wrote, but those two adjoining problems lead to a situation where like if you isolate it down to just first shot half court possessions, the Wolves this season are 10th in offense and 6th in defense. But take like transition possessions and second shot possessions into account and they fall to 23rd and 10th respectively. Yeah. Like that's how bad they've been in those kind of marginal areas. Yeah, and any Kings fans listening right now would be like would say, "Hold up, wait a minute." Um, you know, you think that the Wolves can beat my Kings in a in a seven game series? Meanwhile, you're also telling me that they're atrocious in transition on the defensive end. Well, have you seen the Kings numbers? They are the best transition team in the league. They spend more than a fifth of their time in transition, and obviously, Fox is 
the head of the snake for that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I could definitely understand why any Kings fans listening would, would think um, we, or at least I am a clown for saying the Wolves <laughs> can beat them when, when you then follow up by saying they're terrible in transition. Yeah, but definitely, uh, yeah, I, I think it'd be a, a really entertaining matchup. Um, and that, look, I mean, that's, that's nowhere near set. We're ta- I mean, I'm talking about it as if that's what the matchup's going to be. The Wolves, A, have to cement their play-in status first. B, have to get into the playoffs proper. And C, would have to get the sixth seed to actually make that happen. So actually, yeah, no, they wouldn't even need to get to play-in. They'd have to actually just get directly into the playoffs proper as the sixth seed for them to draw Sacramento. Because Memphis should be pretty comfortable in the two seed now. Right. And it's... I don't know. I mean, there are all these downstream effects, right? Where if the idea is we want to have two bigs on the floor all the time, they can't do that anymore, really. Because as you mentioned, like there just isn't, like they're not going to be playing Luca Garza yeah, or Nathan and Knight. Or Luca Garza is not. <laughs> they're not going to be playing those guys big minutes pitch. in the playoffs. But then I think it also, you got to have at least one big man on the floor at all times. So if they're not playing those guys, then that means you're now really aggressively staggering Towns and Gobert. And maybe that's not a terrible thing because the fit has been pretty clunky so far this season. But ultimately, you still want to figure that fit out. And then you look at it like how they've performed. Like the the lineups with Cat on and Gobert off have been terrible defensively. And the lineups with Gobert on and Cat off have been terrible offensively. It becomes an issue. And then, you know, to the rebounding point and just how, how disappointing it's been, like a big part of the reason I think they went and got Gobert is because they were an awful rebounding team last year. And they were like, man, we're getting one of the best rebounders in basketball. This is really going to shore up our defensive rebounding issues. And that hasn't happened at all. And I actually don't really think that that's any fault of Gobert's. Like it's more that any time seemingly it's somebody other than him under the basket, they are like failing to box out or they're getting outmaneuvered or outmuscled for a board. And the big sort of ripple effect of that is it makes it that much harder for them to do anything like other than play Gobert in a deep drop, which maybe you wouldn't want anyway, but I actually kind of think there have been a lot of points this season where he's shown the ability to do other things like to, to get out on the perimeter, to switch, to play hedge and recover, but they need to have him back there close to the basket because nobody else on this team can grab a defensive rebound. So, to your point about um, how it's n- not necessarily on Gobert that they remain a bad or terrible rebounding team on both ends, do you think or have you seen anything with where Gobert has been like stationed when it comes to rebounding opportunities that would also explain why his individual rebound rate has cratered? Because if you look at it, like he led the league in defensive rebound rate last year. He swallowed up 36 mm-hmm. 0.3% of available defensive rebounds when he was on the court. That number is below 30 this year. Like that's a huge drop. It's 29.8. Um, and again, I'm not going uh, to pretend to know for sure that it's, you know, his own fault and not about like positioning and where they have him in defensive schemes. But I don't know. It seems like for the most part, he's within the same range of the basket as he's been the last few years on the defensive end when a shot goes up and is contested. So I get what you're saying in that I don't think it's completely on him. Like, it's more of a team thing. But a little bit is him seemingly regressing. Like, one of the multiple areas where he does seem to have lost a step this year. It's possible. I mean, I I would have to do more of a deep dive to watch it. But I guess 
off the top of my head, I, I think that if you are not surrounded by other good rebounders or other guys who are diligent about, about boxing out, that makes it harder for you as an individual rebounder yeah. because suddenly you're contesting with more than just your own man on the glass. So, you know, maybe maybe that's part of it. Anecdotally, I would say that's part of it because I just do think having watched them a bunch this season that they do have a lot of guys who aren't diligent enough about those things. But, you know, I think, yeah, there are areas this season where we've seen Gobert lose, you know, maybe a half step. His rim protection hasn't been quite as stout as it's been in the past. And, you know, maybe maybe that's bled into his rebounding as well and just, you know, his ability to get off the floor, whatever it happens to be, could be part of it. But that's just been one area the entire season that I've sort of spotlighted and been like, this is part of what was supposed to make this work. And it hasn't worked all year like you're a big team that can't rebound what is that at either end you know even if you're a poor defensive rebounding team if you're generating a ton of extra possessions on offense that sort of offsets but they've been awful rebounding at both ends and it's really marred the fact that they've actually been again on like first shot possessions a very good half court scoring and half court defending team all year well unfortunately there's more to basketball than that first shot (laughs) Unfortunately for Minnesota. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, well, I, I'm curious to see, you know, what they look like again these last few games without Reed, if they can paper over that absence and keep playing as well as they have been recently and rejigger their rotation, I guess, in such a way that uh, they can survive it. But uh, why don't we take a break there and uh, we'll come back and we can hit on another Western Conference team that is kind of heading in the opposite direction. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Uh, another team that is mired in this Western Conference morass, but actually, as of today, on the outside looking in. At 37-40, and 40, a full game out of the play-in mix. They're a game back of the Oklahoma City Thunder for the 10th and final play-in spot. The Dallas Mavericks, one of the most seismic trades of the season. And since then, since getting Kyrie Irving, they are seven and 14. And they're four and nine in the games that both Kyrie and Luka Doncic play. They just got swept in a home and away set against the Hornets. And they are staring at potentially missing the play-in altogether and then going into an offseason where the guy they just acquired by trading their best defensive player, their starting point guard, and an unprotected pick in 2029 that could be ridiculously valuable. That guy can become a free agent and walk. It's looking like pretty dire straits for those Dallas Mavericks. They, uh, their remaining games are at Miami, at Atlanta, Home against the Kings, home against the Bulls, home against the Spurs. And really only that Spurs game is the one right now that you could say you feel 
super confident in them winning. I mean, I don't know. Are they going to be any bigger? Are they going to be any more heavily favored in that game than they were in each of the two games against Charlotte? The the first of the two Charlotte games they lost, which was in Dallas with both of Luca and Kyrie in the lineup. They and were Charlotte on, by, on and Charlotte on the second night of a back to back. Yes, the Lamelloless Hornets on the second night of a back to back. Dallas was favored by sixteen and a half points in that game and still lost, and then followed up with another lost Hornets. So yeah, they should beat San Antonio, but I don't know. Well, I would say I don't think they will be as heavily favored in that game just because of how they played right. since being as heavily favored as they were in that game against Charlotte. But Charlotte's actually been playing some pretty good basketball yeah, lately decent. whereas the Spurs are really pulling out all the stops to lose as many games as they possibly can here down the stretch. So I'm fine chalking that one up as a win, but the other ones are all totally up in the air. And I would say right now it is as likely, maybe even more likely than not that Dallas just doesn't even make the play in. Yeah, you mentioned dire straits. You know when uh I could have told you the Mavs were in dire straits when they traded for Kyrie Irving because that's something only a team in dire straits does in 2023. That essentially was the death rattle. Even though... Well, yeah, but it wasn't like... I mean, we even no. said this at the time, right? It wasn't even the trade itself, but more what, what it, it indicated. Yes. And the the desperation that trade reeked of, which I wrote about at the time, I'd say this is... Parts of this are predictable. Predictable in the sense that when that trade happened... You, myself, you, pretty much anyone that covers the NBA talked about the fact that the defensive issues and the uh, diminished depth after that trade would be, those two things would combine to be the Mavs undoing at some point and most likely in the playoffs. But I know I thought, and I think you'd agree with this too, I thought at least in the meantime, in the regular season, they'd be able to rack up some wins. And I actually thought post-deadline, they were one of the more solidified West playoff teams, like playoffs proper teams. I really thought that because I thought between Kyrie and Luka, they'd win more than enough regular season games. The offense would just be so electric. At least for the regular season, the defensive questions wouldn't really sink them, even the depth. But those things have sunk them much earlier than expected to the point where, yeah, you know, as you said, they're four and nine, even with both those guys on the court. 336 minutes with both those guys on they're plus 3.6 per hundred possessions which you know is solid enough but as we've said you know at other times when discussing various duos and stuff that's actually not dominant enough when your two best players are on the court and especially when the team around them has the question marks they do when it comes to depth and defense like you need to dominate those minutes if you're going to survive with the surround with the supporting cast around them also while in a vacuum you can look at it and say oh well when they're on the court together, Luca and Kyrie, they're scoring 117.3 points per 100 possessions. So the offense has been as electric as expected. That would have them tied for third in overall offense this season. The caveat there is that if you actually look at since their first game together, like just the portion of the season we're talking about in comparison to the rest of the league, offense has continued to trend up as the season has gone on. So that 117.3 points per 100 possessions... That's like average. Like Yeah, as insane as it sounds, because that's flirting with what previously would be the most efficient offense of all time, would have them 11th on offense since those two guys started playing together and still bottom five on defense. So again, parts of it are predictable in like what, you know, what they're undoing is, 
But the fact that it's happened so early, I'd say was unpredictable. And also the fact that the offense hasn't even been electric enough or dominant enough to override some of that stuff is probably the most disappointing part. The most interesting thing for me now is that, okay, so the Mavs are three games under 500, as you mentioned. They're 11th. They're a game back of the Thunder to even get in the play-in. They currently have the 11th worst record in the league and therefore the 11th best lottery odds. They owe a top 10 protected pick to the Knicks. Mm-hmm. That protected pick is top 10 protected this year, next year, and in 2025. I mean, it still hasn't conveyed. Then it just turns into a 2025 second rounder. So you might be thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe at this point, if they say fall a couple games back, with like maybe it, the best thing for them would actually be finishing in that bottom 10 or just getting a top 10 pick rather than, you know, losing their pick this year. Like, because how you might see it as like, well, how disastrous would it be if they don't even make the play in and they give up their pick? And from that perspective, if they finish with the ninth or 10th worst record, which really, if you look at the standings, they can't get much worse than that because they're already like four and a half games up on the eighth worst record, which is the Wizards. So if they finish with the ninth worst record, they end up with a 97% chance at a top 10 pick. The 10th worst record, still an 80% chance. The 11th worst record, which is where they are right now, only a 9% chance at a top 10 pick. And the difference between those three slots right now is like a half game. But the other part of this is that I think it might actually be in the Mavs' best interest to just get that pick out out the door. Yes, to just give up that pick this year. Even as disastrous as it would sound, you know, the context of like, well, they missed the play-in with both of Luka and Kyrie and they lose their pick. But the catch is that if they don't give up the pick this year because of the rolling protections on it, they actually can't trade a pick until 2027. And then because they've also gotten rid of that 2029 pick to get Kyrie, if they don't give up that pick this year, literally that 2027 pick is the only first rounder they can trade on top of not really having any good young players or like good trade assets to go with it. Whereas if they just get it over with and give that pick up this year, they could then have access soon as the 2023 draft is over. They have access to the 2024 pick, 2025, 2026, 2027, 2028, in terms of they can do some picks, some swaps. So a lot of kind of like moving parts here and questions surrounding this team. But that to me is a big one is, do they give up the pick this year and end up with access to some of those other future picks that they can then use to try to make, I don't know, one more desperation move to get something else here? Or do they end up keeping that pick, but then also have, you know, even more limited asset capital going forward with the big cloud hanging over them of what's going to happen with Kyrie? Because anyone pretending to have an idea of what Kyrie is going to do and decide is fooling themselves. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard some people make the point that like, well, even if Kyrie walks, they can open up close to max cap space. But this free agent class is not very good. And even opening up that amount of space would require them to renounce Christian Wood, renounce Reggie Bullock. And it's like, okay, is anything that you're getting in this free agent class going to make you better? than just keeping those three guys you know like there's no way to replace that amount of you know talent and depth walking out the door for a team that's already extremely thin and top heavy so 
they they just at this point and this was part of the problem with the trade in the first place was that they put themselves in a situation where their options were let Kyrie walk for nothing which is a total disaster or just give him what he wants do whatever it takes to bring him back which might be just as much of a disaster like th- those are the two choices that they're facing in the offseason I think at this point, they kind of just have to lie in the bed that they made and do what it takes to re-sign Kyrie. Yeah, no, I think anyone trying to sugarcoat how disastrous it would be if they now lose Kyrie in free agency is out to lunch. Also out to lunch, Kyrie Irving. Did you see his quote about uh, the end of his time in Brooklyn that, that he mentioned the other night? I wanted to finish out the season with Brooklyn, finish out that season we had going, and I didn't get a chance to do that, uh, as people are pointing out on various uh, social media channels. Kyrie Irving is the reason he didn't get a chance to do that. So just uh, the usual lack of self-awareness and delusion from Kyrie Irving, all of which to say, again, the desperation in the Mavs could be gleaned by the fact they traded for Kyrie Irving. And while I don't necessarily think his performance is the, is now the reason they've been bad since he got there. Like I, I don't think his play has been necessarily disappointing since they got him. I think he's been pretty good, but mm-hmm. they made a very large gamble on a very tenuous situation that, uh, that they arrived at because of really poor management, mismanagement over the last what year or two. And now things are getting dicey, man. And I mean, I guess right now all that matters is them trying to kind of right the ship for this season, but I, I don't know, even if they do and they just end up in the play and I don't really know what the upside of this team is this season. And uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting summer. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the upside for the team this season is extremely low, right? Just because of all the problems that we've hit on uh, the defense, their lack of size, their lack of depth. Like you just, I really like Maxi Kleba. I think he's a pretty valuable player but I don't think you want to be as reliant on him defensively as the Mavs are, especially when he's coming off this like horrific hamstring injury. And I think actually like Kyrie has been really good, right? Even you mentioned the minutes with, with him and Luca on the floor together and how they were good, but not good enough. They're at like plus eight in the Kyrie only minutes. Like when he's on and Luca's off and he's, I don't know, man. He's kind of done everything that they could have yeah, yeah. asked or expected him to do. He's generally been, you know, a good citizen. Like he's put his head down and played good basketball. I think he's fit in with the rest of the players on that roster pretty well. I mentioned, you know, when we talked about him before that, I think he's like pushing the pace for them and they kind of needed that. He's working well off of the ball. I just, it's it's really like the, what's going on around him that has been the issue and so I do think, you know, if they bring him back and they can find a way to fill in the holes on the roster in the offseason, you know, whether through free agency or trades or whatever, and just sort of start with a clean slate next year, things could actually start to be looking way, way up. I just think for the rest of this season, they kind of, I don't know, they just have to get through this. And I think... Whether or not you agree that it would behoove them to like just get that pick out the door and not have to worry about the future protections and restrictions on it, or whether you think they should actually try and like out tank the Bulls or whoever else they would have to be worse than the rest of the way in order to get into the top ten in the lottery and keep the pick, 
one way or another, they will have an opportunity, I think, to make their team a whole lot more functional this coming summer. Yeah, so, all they got to do is get some depth, get some defenders, get a new coach. <laughs> yes, uh, super, super easy stuff to do. But I think that, you know, what's, what's I guess, stood out to me, we knew that the defense was going to be super shoddy. The hope was that the offense was going to be good enough to overcome that. And I think the offense, you mentioned it, it, it's been 11th since the trade. Like they can hit some high highs, some really high highs. Because it's still very jump shot reliant. And because, you know, they, they don't get to the rim a heck of a lot. They really don't get any offensive rebounds. I think they might be dead last in offensive rebounding rate and like 27th in rim frequency. Because of that, they are still very prone to long, cold stretches. And we saw that in the game against Philly the other night when they scored, I think, five points in the last seven minutes of the game. And that was with them running out like teeny tiny all offense lineups with like Luca at the four, Kleba at the five, and like Kyrie Bullock and Hardaway Jr. Like Embiid was guarding Bullock at the end of that game and the Mavs still couldn't score. So that's that's the thing with the offense. Like it's very streaky. And I, you know, I think Jaden Hardy, which is like maybe like the lone bright spot of this Maverick season, apart from obviously how transcendent Luca has been at various points in time. That's kind of the silver lining. Like he, he has gotten to emerge and showcase what he can do. And he is like one of the few guys on the roster who actually provides that rim pressure. Like he really does yeah. get to the rim. Unfortunately, he's been awful at finishing at the rim this season. And I think maybe has some things to work on in terms of his his technique as a finisher. But just being able to get there as often as he does is like a really important first step. And, uh, you know, especially with how well he's been shooting the ball and doing it off of the dribble, like a lot of step back threes, like got a lot of juice. Yeah, whether you see it as a, a team that <clears throat> desperately needs a good player on a rookie scale contract or whether you see it as a, a an all-in team that desperately needs a young guy to pop from a trade value perspective. Hardy's play over the last little bit is definitely the like lone positive right now. But it is hard to find the silver lining in this just absolutely disastrous math season. It's like Hardy and Josh Green, right? Like those are the two fair nice stories. And yeah, yeah I like Josh Green a lot. I think what's interesting to me is I watch the Mavs and opposing teams are still basically guarding him with a rover, like putting their best help defender on green and having them help way off of him. Despite the fact that he's shooting, you know, what's he shooting from three this season, like 43% or something. That's high. I mean, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um, it's it's, it's, it's still 40, like pretty, I believe. yeah, but he's still doing it on pretty low volume. And I guess you know, opposing teams are still not trusting it and daring him to, to keep, knocking down shots and for the most part he's done it he deserves a lot of credit for that but i'm curious to see you know how long it takes them to actually start commanding serious defensive attention because uh on the whole his presence on the court doesn't actually really open things up for them in the way that you might expect um okay one last thing on the Mavs before we move on so i mentioned christian wood briefly what do you think they're gonna do with him i'm Man, like, i'm so I curious how he fits into all this i have no clue and and i'm especially just 
confounded by this entire situation. Because if you remember from the beginning of the season, from when the move was made in the off season, I was really high on this for Dallas. Not because I thought Christian Wood was some like star big man in the making, but because as I've noted so many times this season, I thought at the, this was obviously pre Kyrie trade at the time. I thought Wood represented the type of like high upside, but because of his baggage, he, he could be had for a lesser offer which is what the Mavs, you know, used to get him. But he did represent the type of high upside Dallas needed to take a swing on given their predicament of like needing to surround Luka with talent without necessarily having the assets to do it. So I was very high on the trade because of that. And also because offensively, for reasons I've mentioned a thousand times this year, I thought Wood was really a perfect complement to Luka. And I think he's proven to be that offensively. The issue is that Jason Kidd from the beginning clearly wanted nothing to do with this guy. And you could say, well, it's because of his defensive limitations. Fine. But like, look at the team. It, it's not exactly like the Mavs have been trotting out defensive problem solvers when Wood's not on the court. And also they even got to a point where a so defeated Jason Kidd even mentioned shortly after the Kyrie trade that the Mavs were at a point where like, they know they're not necessarily going to win games with defense and they need to outscore people. And it's like, well, if you've come to that realization, well, now what's your excuse for not including Wood in some of these lineups? Like, it it just hasn't made sense all year. Like, to take the swing on Wood and then, in my opinion, not really maximize him being there made no sense to me. And then, yeah, now you go into the offseason where he's a free agent. And I don't really know. Like, on one hand, you can say, well, there's not, I don't think, going to be too much competition for him. Like, I don't think anyone's going to come in and blow another team away with an offer for Wood. But at the same time, you know, the devil's advocate would be, well, yeah, but even if you're Dallas, if he doesn't fit into the plans, why why spend anything on him to keep him? But I, I would still say retain the asset, especially in the situation the Mavs are in for a guy who does offensively fit really well with Luka. Even if it's as a offensive specialist reserve, like I still think yeah. it's worth their while to keep him. And also assuming there is another coach there next season, maybe that guy will see the value in how to use Christian Wood with Luka Doncic. What are they not doing with him that you think they should be? He's playing I just 26 don't think minutes play- a game. You think you think he's more than a 26-minute-a-game player? I think at this point now, maybe post-Kyrie trade, no. But I think there was a large stretch of the season where they did not play him enough. We're, like when Kleba was out, before mm-hmm. they got Kyrie, I just thought there were so many times when Wood was clearly impacting the game and again like the defense is what it is but this this team was terrible defensively it's not just him but I thought there were so many times where he was clearly impacting the game and he was on the whole probably a net positive on the night and then would disappear in the fourth quarter because he literally wasn't playing and Jason Kidd's excuse always came down to defense and other options but I just didn't buy it based on who they were still trotting out there and the defensive metrics with or without Wood Mm -hmm. so I thought maybe you could say now there's not much more they can be doing with him, but I thought for a good chunk of this season, Kid was not maximizing having Wood. You think it's better than Nas Reed? Honestly, I... Because Nas Reed plays 18 minutes a game. No, I know, but I, I do think Christian Wood is actually better than Nas Reed. I think I like Nas Reed more, <laughs> but I think Christian Wood is the better basketball player. But not by a lot, right? Not by a lot. 
this is why I push back on some of the stuff about like people saying that he's been misused or whatever. I think he's been used basically in the role that suits him best. It's just that his limitations are his limitations. And like throughout the entire season, the Mavs have been struggling to figure out what's the best coverage to deploy him in defensively. And like, uh, like ball screen coverage is like, I don't know. They've tried pretty much everything. I feel like the thing they've settled on is just having him switch out and then shading a lot of help his way. Sometimes going with like straight up switch doubles and, I guess they feel like that's that's been the best way to protect him, but there's no real good answer, and that's kind of the issue. Um, that that makes him f- like fine and serviceable as a bench big because of how good he is offensively. And I do agree, like the offensive fit with Luca and Kyrie has been exceptional. But I don't know if that leaves him as anything more than a 26 minute a game big. And I think when it comes down to like the decision they have to make about him this summer. I kind of feel like if Kyrie does resign, then go ahead and retain the asset. Yes, I but if he that. doesn't, then I think the decision becomes okay. We lost Kyrie. Now we have to open up as much cap space as we possibly can and try and replace what we lost on the free agent market. Whether it's you know targeting I don't know Fred Van Vliet, Draymond Green, something like that. Give themselves a shot. Uh, whereas like if Kyrie comes back, they don't have the cap space anyway. So you might as well use your bird rights to bring back wood. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that, but I just think it's a really imperfect situation, no matter how it works. Like it's insane that I'm saying that, that no matter how this goes, I think they're in an imperfect situation. It's insane to be saying that about a team that employs one of the most transcendent talents of this generation. The fact that they have, back themselves into the corner. It's something I've been talking about since last year. The mismanagement that was slowly leading to this is just, it's almost impressive in the worst way that they have managed to put themselves in this position while having Luka Doncic. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it so often that we really don't need to beat that dead horse any longer, but like the Jalen Brunson thing is really the original sin in all of this that, that led them to this position. And it's actually incredible how much of this could have been avoided, how good a spot they could have been in if they had just, you know, forget the the extension stuff and the deal they could have signed him to, which would have been maybe the best contract in basketball right now. They still could have outbid the Knicks to bring him back in the summer, right? I mean, maybe he just had his heart set on going to New York one way or another, but... Yeah, and that's why I think the extension part is the worst part. Because even if the pushback is, well, once it got to free agency, he was definitely going to New York and like, you know... That's fine, but that extension that you mentioned probably would have had him on the best contract in the NBA right now. That's the one they really bungled. All right, let's stay on the trend of depressing topics, shall we? I had mentioned to you shortly after our episode bouncing around the East that I I couldn't believe in talking about the Nets, we had completely forgotten to even mention Ben Simmons' name. I can believe we were talking about like about the NBA players on their team. This is the thing. Like he is very much just the forgotten man. They were talking about young players on the team and like players that could be, you know, building blocks or part of their future. And we did not even think to mention Ben Simmons, who is still, what is he? 26 now? Ben Simmons is, yeah, he'll be 27 in July. He's only two years removed from being an all-star. That's the thing. Like, I, I mean, it's staggering just how much he has disappeared from anything resembling relevancy in the NBA. And Dude, shortly after... Is, sorry, I was just saying, he's two years removed 
from being a three-time All-Star by the age of 24. Yeah, and I mean, look, we can quibble about some of those All-Star selections, and I know I have in the past, but the point is he was a highly productive young player who ought to have been on an upward trajectory, and that obviously hasn't happened for various reasons, many of which I think we can say are beyond his control, some of which were not, some of which were in his control, but this back issue, which has now ended his season, I was going to say shortly after we had that conversation via text about how we completely forgot to mention him in the Nets conversation, they announced that they were shutting him down for the season with a nerve impingement in his back. And that's going to leave him at 42 games played this season. He played 26 minutes a game in the games that he was healthy, averaged basically seven, six, and six with a usage rate of 14% cash. Josh Akogi is laughing at that usage rate. I can't believe how low it is. Like that is so that is uh, like deep role player stuff. To, to to piggyback off that, if you look there, he's played just over eleven hundred minutes this season. There are two hundred and thirty eight players in the NBA that have played eleven hundred minutes this year. Out of those two hundred and thirty eight, Ben Simmons ranks two hundred and twenty seventh in field goals attempted per one hundred possessions. Sandwiched nicely between Matisse Thybul and John Conchar. John Conchar has been good this season. Yeah, the point is, <laughs> Ben Simmons, that guy who we mentioned being a three-time uh, yeah. All-Star by the age of 24, within two years, not that he was ever the most shot-happy guy, but within two years has become just like, a role player doesn't even describe it, his aversion to getting involved in the offense. So he's got two years left on his contract. Uh, I think a total of 78-ish million dollars owed to him over those two years. I mean, you just got to hope that he can get physically healthier, as close to that as is possible at this point in time. Whatever you want to say or speculate about the psychological hurdles he's dealt with, those are what they are. But like, just get physically healthy enough to play and contribute in whatever way you can, because this has gotten so sad. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, man. I don't know how much physical health has anything to do with this. Really? What? So you think this this nerve impingement thing is like a, a cover or a sham? You don't actually think he's okay. Hurt? I don't think I don't listen. I'm not saying that they're completely false or like creating injuries. It doesn't have. I'm sure the injuries are there, but I do feel like perhaps the injuries he's sustained aren't actually serious enough to limit him the way the team has insinuated they've limited him. Like I I don't know if he's ne- needed to actually be out of action and away from the team as long as he's been. I think Ben Simmons caught the worst case of the yips in basketball history. Mm-hmm. And the injuries are perhaps a very convenient excuse for the teams to save him some embarrassment. I mean, I, look, you, you can say that and I'm not going to say you're wrong because I don't know one way or another psychological injuries are still injuries, I suppose. And, you know, whatever it is that is that has kept him out for, you know, first an entire season, obviously, and then for half of this one, I, I think it's legitimate one way or another, like whether it is a psychological injury or a physical one. And I will say like when he was healthy, quote unquote healthy, he didn't look like the same guy athletically that we had last seen playing Philly. I don't think. So I very much believe that there is something going on there with his back that is preventing him from 
reaching the level that he was playing at at his best. And those two things, I'm sure, compound Again, I'm each not, other, right? I'm like, not discounting that. He is actually hurt. Like, that's not what I'm just saying that. I don't think it's necessarily like injuries that have kept him out as long as he's been out in each of the last two years. Yeah. But I, what I mean, like when I say that those things would, would compound each other is like, if you don't trust your body in the same way that you did, then that's going to make it yes. a, a whole lot more difficult for you to, you know, just do the things that you believe yourself to be capable of on a basketball court or did at least at one point in time. Yeah. And then... Like if you're dealing with something psychological, then that's probably going to amplify whatever physical discomfort you're feeling, you know? So yeah. having those two things going on at once would just make both of them that much worse. And I don't know, it's just it's just a really unfortunate situation that that, that has not only derailed like what seemed to be a very, very promising career, but has now put the Nets in this kind of difficult position where they're paying max money to a guy who might not play. Like you can't rely on him to play ever. Right. Like that is like, like I, I don't think he's done completely, but if you're the Nets, you kind of have to approach this as if he's not going to be on the court for you next yeah. season. Um, so I, I want to actually use that to transition us to make or miss because I'm going to do something a little bit unconventional, which is give a sort of fan shout out as part of our make or miss segment because we did get. Uh, a, a message on Twitter from one of our loyal listeners, Sylvester Valderrama, who we've shouted out on this show before, but who gave us a make or miss question that we can get to by by pivoting off of this conversation about Simmons, because he asked, make or miss, given the draft capital and financial amount the Sixers and Nets have put into Ben Simmons, he is the biggest number one pick bust of all time. Uh, okay, I'm still going to call that a miss. And the, reason, and the reason is because whatever you think of Ben Simmons, as much fun as we have at his expense, unfortunately, and as much as, you know, as you mentioned, you can quibble with whether he should have been a three-time All-Star. The, the fact is he, he made three All-Star teams by the age of 24 and was, despite his offensive limitations, a very, very, very key component of a contending team for a couple of years. Yeah. That cannot be debated. By the way, and, not just three all-star teams, but an all-NBA team, two all-defensive teams, yes. a defensive well, was, player of the year runner-up finish. All before turning 25 years old while being a top two, or I guess, you know, the year Jimmy came out worst, a top three player on a what was a perennial contender at that point. Yeah. And so, well, you could say he's maybe like become one of the most negatively dramatic, through not necessarily fault of his own, but you could say he's been like one of the most negatively dramatic uh, careers of a number one pick, at least in recent memory. I, I just don't think you can call him the biggest bust as a number one because of those things I already mentioned. Whereas, again, not talking about fault of his own, but you look at, just say, someone like a Greg Oden, who, did he even crack 100 games in the NBA? No, I think Greg Oden only played 82 games total in the NBA, didn't he? Or something like that? I can't remember off the top of my and head. And also but it was... has the unfortunate stigma of being drafted ahead of Kevin Durant. Or even like what Anthony Bennett was as a number one, like number one overall pick. And then you look at what his career was. Say what you will about Ben Simmons. You just can't call him the biggest number one bust of all time when guys like that also exist. Because Ben Simmons' best few years were, even if you don't want to say he was a superstar, they were pretty close to superstar shit. And there have been number one picks that have 
not even had consistent runs of being NBA rotation players. Or in the case of Greg Oden, looked good when played, but just, you know, was so snake-bitten by injuries that the guy never even played more than the equivalent of a full NBA season. Yeah, by the way, Oden was at 82 games after his Blazers tenure ended, but he came back, you may recall, four years later to play with that 2013-14 Heat team, tacked on another 23 games and got to 105. Um, Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of number ones you could point to who have been way more disappointing. People who never reached anything resembling the heights that Simmons reached. I think the spirit of the argument is suggesting that because of like the, the Sixers gave him a max contract, which obviously nobody did with Greg Oden or Anthony Bennett or any other, you know, disappointing number ones that you could point to. And then the Nets made him the centerpiece of their James Harden trade. And it's like, does that make him more of a bust? I would still say no, but I, I don't I think understand what, I, was just, I don't think it makes him more of a bust, but I think maybe the way you can frame it is like Ben Simmons, in terms of the uh, salaries he's gotten and the trade capital that has been involved in his movement has been perhaps the worst, I don't know, value to dollar ratio of MP- of, or value to, you know, trade value, on-court value to trade to value ratio of number one picks has been the worst. But again, I think now we're like really getting into the weeds and splitting hairs. But I think if the question is just, is he the biggest number one bust of all time? I think that's an easy miss. That's a no. Yeah, but maybe you could argue that he's like the worst value on his second NBA fair. contract. Then Because those other guys were barely worth second contracts. That's the thing. Okay, so I, I had another make or miss uh, of my own, but I'll I'll let you hit me with one before we get to that. All right, cool. My make or miss this, this week is also a little different. And it's that, so I don't know if you saw the other night, uh, Russell Westbrook, who, by the way, had his best game, maybe his best game in a couple of years in that uh, win over Memphis, big win for the Clippers, huge game for Russ. I think he had 36 and 10, 38 and 10, something like that. But anyway, he also made news and headlines during that game because at some point during that road game in Memphis, he tried to have a fan ejected, which, hey, Fair enough. Like, as we've all said before, fans can say some crazy things, some offensive things. Players should not tolerate it. There is a line that should not be crossed, except when security grabbed the fan, brought him to the back, questioned him, also, I guess, talked to Russ and realized the stories matched. It came out that that fan didn't say anything that crossed the line, anything crazy, offensive, or personal. He merely called Russell Westbrook Westbrook. And as Russell Westbrook has said in the past, you know, he's not going to tolerate that anymore. So he tried to have a fan ejected. The fan was allowed to end up back in his seat because security, I guess, Dean, uh, we can't kick a fan out for that, like a paying customer out for that. So my make or miss for you is very simple this week. Make or miss, Joe Wolfond. That was some bullshit from Russell Westbrook. That was pathetic. Make. (laughs) Like, come on. I understand. Look, I, I do understand that a lot of this shit does cross the line. Mm-hmm. And this is not what these athletes signed up for to get like belittled and, you know, in some cases peppered with slurs and various things like, you know, talking about family members, things like that, that are just despicable and have no place in the world of sports. But something like saying Westbrook, like, you know, a play on Westbrook's name that I think, what do you say in the past? It's like his kids were being taunted with that name. And that's why it was like so personal for him. 
I'm not saying I'm not sympathetic to that. I wouldn't want to get taunted like that either and like have my kids get taunted about it if I wasn't playing well. But I agree that to try and have a fan ejected over that is a little bit it's too pushly. sensitive. It's too sensitive. Yeah. Given given the the universe that you are operating in. That's exactly. I think that was well said because I do think well again, you know, I am not at all um, downplaying how offensive some of the remarks can get and remarks that absolutely should get fans kicked out and held banned once they cross a certain line. But if we're going to get to the point where like, like if if you can't call Russell Westbrook Westbrook as a taunt, as a visiting fan, like at that point, what are we saying? Anything but booing is too offensive as a fan. Like, come on, there needs to be some area for fans to have fun with it and create great atmosphere. You know, the playoffs are coming up. Are we really going to say like, well, hey, make sure you don't cross the line and call a player wet, like use brick as part of his name. Like, come on, man. That's and and also to your point, when yeah, like it's not what they signed up for when you're talking about like the most offensive shit. Part of like what does come with the territory are these kind of heckles and and stuff like that. And if you can't even take this anymore without needing that fan to be removed from the arena. I'm sorry, you might not have the capacity to play in the NBA anymore, Russell West. But like, if you can't handle a fan saying something that simple, and to the point about, like, yeah, is it is it horrible if Russell Westbrook's kids are being taunted with that? Of course it is. But again, unfortunately, that does come with the... Ter- not that they asked for it, but part of the territory of fame, celebrity, being a professional athlete that does get heckled on the road is like that stuff might happen. Russell Westbrook's not the first player who's been heckled for his performance. And then potentially that, that athletes kids have had to hear about it. Like, again, not saying it's right that the kids are having to hear about it, but we can't start saying, well, no visiting fans cannot do anything but boo because these guys have kids. Like, come on, man, as long as they're not crossing certain lines, we know are there personal and otherwise this stuff is within bounds and Russell Westbrook trying to have this fan ejected for it is complete Bush League stuff. Um, also, sorry, one thing I'll add to that too, and it's something I've said with Russ before, like entertainment-wise, at his best, I've always loved Russ. I think he's a great character, super good for the game. But one thing I've said in the past, both in terms of the way he competes on the court and the way he's been with fans, is that Russell Westbrook to me is this guy who's like this relentless competitor, super competitive, talks a lot of trash, whatever, but has always seemingly not been able to understand or accept other players playing as hard as him against him or other players and or fans talking the same trash back to him that he likes to talk. Um, Okay, last one for you, Cash. The Boston Celtics in a marquee matchup against the Milwaukee Bucks last night, one that could very well prove to be the matchup that decides the Eastern Conference, absolutely pancaked those Bucks beat them down by 41 points in Milwaukee, no less. Now, the Bucks were on the second night of a back-to-back. The night before, they dropped 149 points on the Pacers. They are still two games up on the Celtics for the number one seed in the East. They are very close to just sewing that up. So you can say they didn't have a ton to play for. You can say any number of things. Make any number of excuses for the Bucks. But my make or miss for you, Cash, is that that performance from both teams should change how we feel about the matchup that could ultimately decide the East. 
I'm going to say it's a miss. They're not taking anything away from the Celtics absolutely throttling Milwaukee. Super impressive win from a super impressive team that has been at or near the top of the overall standings all season. But we're at the point of the year now. It's almost April. The playoffs are a couple of weeks away. I One game like that just can't change what I think about both teams. And again, it's not like I'm saying, well, the Celtics aren't are trash. And that's why I don't think they're bad. I just think Milwaukee can hit a certain level that we've seen them hit for the majority of the last couple months that I just don't think any other team in the NBA can hit. And on this night, clearly the Celtics hit a level the Bucs didn't hit and the Bucs very much let go of the rope pretty quickly once the Celtics started curb stomping them. But again, without taking anything away from that individual performance, I am not going to use that as a reason to now say, okay, the, the Celtics are actually better than the Bucs and will beat them 4-7 because also the Bucs are still in line to have that one seed, to have home court in a potential East Finals matchup. I just think, in my mind, they would still be overall the better team with the best player on the court, with home court, in a seven-game series. I would still lean Milwaukee despite a very impressive throttling by the Celtics. Fair enough. I mean, we're, yeah, I, I don't need to add anything to that. I think the Celtics shot the absolute lights out in a way that is certainly not going to happen every game, but I do think it showcased some of the things that make them a tricky matchup for the Bucs. I mean, they're a tricky matchup for everyone. They're, you know, in my mind, at worst, the second best team in basketball right now. So it's not specific to the Bucs, but they held Giannis in check. You know, Al Horford as the primary doing what Al Horford does against Giannis. And obviously that's like a full team scheme that's helping to slow him down, but they have the horses to do it. And then at the other end, they can just kind of really stretch the bucks out to the point that that extraordinary interior defense that the bucks can throw at teams doesn't have as much impact on a team that has the kind of jump shooting talent that the Celtics have. And on those nights where the shots are going down, they're going to be exceptionally tough to stop. So let's leave that there. Um, we got a, f- a couple fan shout outs banked. We shouted out uh, Sylvester for his make or miss question this week. We'll uh, leave it at that and, and keep the other few uh, that we have in the chamber. We are very much, I know I say this a lot and lately haven't been coming through just because of our schedules, but we are very much hoping to have two episodes go up next week. So we'll be able to get to those other fan shout outs. But for now, we're putting a bow on this one. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Talk to y'all soon. Pound the rock.